understand it's essentially the same unappreciative crowd full of scumbags from last night. Hello and welcome to the Scumbags Wrestling Podcast. My name is Sean. I'm your host, coming to you from London, Ontario, Canada. I hope you share this podcast with your friends, whether they listen to their favorite podcasts on Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, or Google. They can always find the Scumbags Wrestling Podcast. This is a special edition of the podcast as we do the Time Warp, with Survivor Series coming up on Sunday November 18th, I'm taking a look back 25 years to the fallout from SummerSlam 93 to Survivor Series 1993. It was the 7th Annual Survivor Series coming to you from the Boston Gardens in Boston, Massachusetts on Thanksgiving Eve, a Wednesday, November 24th, 1993. This event consisted of four elimination tag team matches plus the Smoky Mountain Wrestling Tag Team titles were on the line. We'll be right back after this very short message and hop in the time machine and go back to 1993, the Survivor Series. Want to be a wrestler? The time is now to join the Tyson Dukes Wrestling Factory. The first class is going to graduate in October, and it's going to leave a lot of open space. Learn from one of Canada's best wrestlers, and trainers around. Tyson has been wrestling since 1997 and has wrestled for Blood, Sweat, and Years, Border City Wrestling, Ring of Honor, Impact Wrestling, WWE, was part of the first Cruiserweight Classic, and one of the longest reigning champions for Smash Wrestling. Tyson just recently spent a week in Florida as a guest trainer at the WWE Performance Center. The Tyson Dukes Wrestling Factory is located at 309 Exeter Road in London, Ontario and is open every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday evening from 6 p.m. to 8.30. Find out why Tyson is one of the pillars of Smash Wrestling. The Tyson Dukes Wrestling Factory teaching the new generation of hopefuls into superstars.
The Signature Spot with Chris Toplack is a weekly podcast available every Thursday that covers the world of professional wrestling. It's an easy-to-digest show that ranges from 30 to 40 minutes in length and focuses on show recaps, highlights from the week, industry news and rumors, full event previews along with predictions, topics of the week, and featured guests such as journalists and fellow podcasters. It's a professional yet personable show that's all about connecting with you. To subscribe, head over to youtube.com forward slash the signature spot or listen on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever podcasts are available. And to be a part of the conversation, like the signature spot on Facebook. Yo, this is Tarek. You listen to Scumbags of Wrestling. Punch, kick, chop, done. Hello. Do you or someone you know have a business that you'd love to have advertised here on our podcast? Well, give me a shout at our email address, scumbagswrestling at gmail.com, and let us know how we can help you advertise to the listeners of this podcast. We'll give your business a shout out, including information on how people can reach out to you and information on your services. Are you looking to get your own Scumbags Wrestling t-shirt or the Scumbags Podcast t-shirt? Well, look no further than our friends over at Twisted Tees at TwistedTeesMerch.com. Since their company launched in 2006, they've become one of the top screen printers known for their large, colorful, high-detailed prints. Their theory behind what they decide to print is simple. It's about keeping it real and taking you back to your early years, browsing through endless movies at your local video store, only to be sucked in by the very intriguing cover art. Even if the movie itself wasn't so great, it's that original cover that will always remain locked inside your head. Over the years, they've become even more creative with introducing limited edition designs. With the amazing feedback they receive from their Warriors and Zombies hoodies, as well as their button-up work shirts, they will bring you even more one-of-a-kind designs. All of their products are screen-printed and embroidered directly in their shop. They don't use any outside sources to produce their goods, nor do they use cheap iron-ons. They guarantee heads will turn when you wear Twisted Tees to your next outing. Twisted Tees also provides printing for Kill Effect, Shock Stock, Monsters of Schlock, Shadow uh, Windbrook, and Vagrancy Films. So look out for Twisted Tees online, once again, at TwistedTeesMerch.com and get your own Scumbags of Wrestling t-shirt for just $25. And we're back with the Time Warp back to 1993 Survivor Series from Boston, Massachusetts. The show opens with Lex Luger and his family wishing everybody a happy Thanksgiving. The American National Anthem is then sung, followed by the opening graphics, and we are greeted by Physic Man and Bobby the Brain Heenan, who are at ringside to host today's show. At that time, they were also doing Radio WJF, which would go for quite well now with the world of podcasts, so they're a little bit ahead of their time. But doing Radio WJF at the time was Gorilla Monsoon and Jim Ross. 
Our opening match was then the team of IRS, Diesel, Atabomb with Harvey Whippleman, and Rick the Mar- Martell taking on the team of Razor Ramon, the 1-2-3 Kid, and Marty Jannetty, and what was supposed to be Mr. Perfect Kurt Hennig turned into the Macho Man Randy Savage. Several of the combatants were involved in feuds leading up to this match. Diesel had made his WWF debut on June 6th of 1993 as a bodyguard for Shawn Michaels in a match between Michaels and Jannetty. Diesel interfered in the match, helping Michaels defeat Jannetty to win the WWF Intercontinental Championship. Diesel was also at ringside to help Michaels win. HBK faced Mr. Perfect for the title at SummerSlam 93. Diesel attacked Perfect on multiple occasions during the match and ultimately caused Perfect to lose the match via countout. In September of 93, Michaels was stripped of the Intercontinental Championship by WWF President Jack Tunney. A battle royal was scheduled to determine the top two contenders for the championship. Razor Ramon and Rick the Mile and Martel were the last two wrestlers in the ring, and they faced off against each other one-on-one the following week to determine the new Intercontinental Champion. On that night, Razor Ramon had beat Rick Martel with the Razor's Edge to be awarded the championship belt. Erwin R. Scheister had initiated a feud with Ramon in May of 93 after Ramon had lost the t- match to the one 2 3 kid in a surprising upset on Monday Night Raw. Scheister and his then-tag-team partner Ted DiBiase, as part of Money, Inc., made fun of Ramon for the loss and offered him a job as a servant. In response, Ramon teamed with the one 2 3 kid for a series of matches against Money, Inc., and they also distracted Scheister during a match and caused him to lose to P.J. Walker, who would eventually become Aldo Montoya, or as we also know him as, Just Incredible. The only one who really didn't have any feuds going on in this match was Adam Baum, who's selected as their fourth member of the team. There had been some animosity between Baum's teammates, uh, Rick Martell, and Baum's manager, Harvey Whippleman, at ringside to help Martell in the match against Ramon. For some unknown reason, Whippleman was standing in the way of the match, and Martell ran into him. While Martell was distracted, Ramon uh, pinned him to get the match and be declared the champion. Martell then yelled at Whippleman and pushed him, and Baum came to the ring to defend his manager, and an argument ensued until Diesel and Scheister came to the ring and calmed them down. So before the match had started, Razor announced that Savage was taking the place of Perfect, who was unable to appear. Martel and Ramon began the match in the ring, but Martel soon tagged out to bring in Adam Baum. Ramon performed a suplex on Baum and attempted to pin his opponent, but then Martel tried to rescue his partner and ended up hitting Adam Baum instead and caused an argument between the four teammates. The 1-2-3 kid then entered the match and was overpowered by Adam Baum and Diesel. After the kid tagged out, Savage performed a diving elbow drop on Diesel before getting the pinfall to eliminate Diesel from the match. Ramon was attacked by his opponents 
and eventually tagged Savage back into the match. Savage was distracted by Crush, who he was having a feud with, and was looking for revenge upon. So instead of doing the elbow drop from the top rope as he was planning, when he noticed Crush coming down the aisle, he climbed down and was going to go after Crush. However, his teammates stopped him and sent him back into the ring. But that didn't stop Savage from being distracted from Crush, and Savage was cradled from behind and eliminated from the match. Razor got back in and hit the Razor's Edge on Shyster for the pin, but when Razor went for another Razor's Edge on Martel, Shyster snuck back into the ring and hit Ramon with his briefcase. Ramon ended up rolling to the outside of the ring, but was ended up counted out and eliminated from the match. This left it down to a tag team encounter with the 123 Kid and Marty Jannetty taking on Adam Baum and Rick Martel. The four men went back and forth, but eventually the 123 Kid pinned Martel with a sunset flip, and then almost immediately Marty Jannetty got in there and he had a sunset flip on Adam Baum to get the victory for their team and be the two survivors in the opening match. I don't think anybody expected to see Savage in the match, let alone to see 123Kid and Marty Jannetty end up being the survivors of the team. Especially when you have people like Diesel, who sure was still fresh in the organization, and Razor Ramon in the same match. To imagine 123Kid and Marty Jannetty as the winners, unfathomable really on paper. Uh, It was a decent match. It might have gotten a little long in the tooth, and yeah, I think they might have realized that, and that's why there was the quick eliminations to finish off the uh, last two eliminations and move on to the rest of the card. In the back, we are introduced and welcomed by Todd Pettengill, who had Shawn Michaels with him, and they were talking about the upcoming match involving Shawn Michaels and the Knights taking on the Hart family. But before Todd got some comments from Sean about it, they showed Sean a interview that Ray Combs had done earlier in the day with the Hart family. Ray had asked Brett about the upcoming match against Shawn Michaels and the Knights, and of course everything just seemed kind of odd since the original matchup was supposed to be Jerry Lawler and the Knights, which made sense with a King and Knights, as opposed to Shawn Michaels. And they tried to weave in what happened uh, last year at the Survivor Series when Shawn took on Brett. And they had done a little filming of vignettes beforehand of Shawn. I think they were able to insert it uh, before Raw the week before Survivor Series, where Shawn went looking for the hearts. And insulted Martha and I should say Helen and Stu, not Martha. Um, but they insulted the family of the Hearts. It might have even been one of those rare segments with Bruce Pritchard as Rio Rogers, if I recall right. And then Owen made comments. Bruce did and Keith did. Everybody apparently in the area were hearts, according to Ray Combs, because of how many hearts are in the family. 
And Sean was then asked about his comments. Yeah, they definitely had to improv a lot just to make the storyline fit because of the change in where it was supposed to be Jerry Lawler against Bret Hart. But they made it, and that led us to our next match. The next match was the Family Feud match with Bret the Hitman Hart, along with his brother the Rocket Owen Hart, and his other two brothers, Bruce and Keith, taking on Shawn Michaels and his Knights. Originally, it was supposed to be Jerry Lawler instead of Shawn Michaels. Jerry had spent most of 93 building the feud with the Hart family, especially after Bret Hart had won the first King of the Ring tournament in 1993, and that was at the same time that Lawler came into WWE and was also the king, and he felt that he was the only king of wrestling and the only true king of the WWE. And so he attacked Bret Hart after being crowned at the King of the Ring and hit him with the scepter and the throne at, during the coronation ceremony. And subsequently, weeks after that, since he was doing commentary on superstars, he was putting down Bret Hart and eventually started putting down Helen and Stu. And this was supposed to culminate to their big match at Survivor Series because he'd even done their match at SummerSlam where he'd gotten doinked to replace him against Bret Hart and eventually had to face Bret. So this was supposed to be the blow-off of everything that was happening between Jerry Lawler and Bret Hart with his family. Lawler's partners were three masked men known only as the Blue Knight, Red Knight, and Black Knight. But then Jerry was unable to attend the event due to some legal activity that was going on in Memphis, and he was not able to appear. So they ended up bringing back Shawn Michaels, who replaced Lawler in the match. And Michaels also had a rivalry with Brett, dating back to the previous year when they faced each other at Survivor Series. And supposedly Sean had been assaulting the family and wanted also revenge for his loss to Bret Hart at Survivor Series 92. So the match started with Ray Coombs bringing her way to the ring, but he had to crack some really lame jokes uh, beforehand, and then the participants all made their way to the ring. All the knights uh, wore masks to hide their identities, and apparently they were supposed to be revealed during the match, but because Jerry Lawler wasn't involved with it, they felt no need to continue with that idea, and so just the knights participated in the match, and when they were eliminated... They didn't have their masks taken off them. However, over the years, it had been revealed that the other knights were actually Jeff Gaylord as the Black Knight. He did not really do anything in WWE. He was mainly with Universal, World Class Championship Wrestling, and USWA, and was a uh, former football player. But... To WWE fans, he really didn't do anything except for his appearance as a Black Knight. 
Greg the Hammer Valentine was the Blue Knight, and Barry Horowitz was the Red Knight. Michaels began the match by wrestling Bruce Hart. Although Michaels was able to go on the offense against the Hart brothers, the Knights were unable to achieve much success against the Hearts. At one point, all four wrestlers brawled in the ring, but Owen was able to eliminate the Black Knight after performing a missile dropkick. Shawn Michaels and the Knights regained control of the match, but Brett turned things around by eliminating the Red Knight by submission with the sharpshooter. Brett sustained a injury after being thrown into the ring and sat out the match for the next couple of minutes. Meanwhile, Shawn Michaels provoked Stu Hart into punching him, and in inside the ring, Owen forced the Blue Knight to submit to a sharpshooter, which left Michaels by himself. While Brett was standing on the ring apron, however, Owen ran into him and got distracted. This allowed Sean to pin Owen and eliminate him from the match. Brett dominated the rest of the match against Michaels until Michaels walked back to the locker room and was counted out. The Hart family had won the match, and after the match, Owen returned to the ring and yelled at Brett, blaming Brett uh, for causing him to be eliminated from the match. In the weeks after that, Owen had challenged Brett to a match after the Survivor Series, but Brett refused to fight his brother. The two reunited and faced the Quebecers for the Tag Team Championships at the 94 Royal Rumble, but that's when Owen turned on Brett, and Brett did finally agree to face his now heel brother at WrestleMania, with, which was one of the best matches on that card that night. As for how this match went, it was kind of, for myself, lackluster with the fact that it wasn't the way it was supposed to go, and it was very sloppily put together last minute. It did do, I guess, what it was supposed to do by advancing Owen to becoming a heel and eventually working with Brett in their feud throughout 1994, but... It was a good way of starting that off. As for the match quality itself, it really lacked. And it suffered due to all the changes that had to be made. My name is The Muscle, Smash Wrestling's hottest free agent. I toss bodies and wheel hotties. And you're listening to the Scumbags of Wrestling podcast. After only two matches in, it looked like they were giving everybody a little bit of an intermission as they decided to do a little bit of a pause and switch up the commentary teams. And Gorilla Monsoon and Jim Ross took over commentating for the pay-per-view. And Bobby Heenan and Vince McMahon switched over to Radio WWF. Then they took time to recap everything that led up to the main event where Lex Luger's team was going to take on the foreign fanatics. They showed video of how various members of each team were eliminated before even Survivor Series happened and how they were replaced by the people that were new to the team. I'll recap all that as we get to the main event. They then showed comments earlier in the day from the foreign fanatics with Jim Cornette 
leading the charge. Jim Cornette introduced Crush as their fourth member, and it's interesting to see this combination as they're on screen right now, because you have Yokozuna, who's passed away, Mr. Fuji's passed away, I believe Ludwig Borga is also gone, and you got Johnny Polo in the back, and everybody knows that Johnny Polo became Raven, and probably his best character of all of the ones that he had. After that vignette finished, out came the original Mama's Boy, James E. Cornette, for our next match, which was going to be this for the Smoky Mountain Tag Team Championships, as the Heavenly Bodies challenged the current champions, the Rock and Roll Express, for the titles. This match was part of an agreement between WWE owner Vince McMahon and Smoky Mountain Wrestling owner Jim Cornette. The Rock and Roll Express, who had held the belts going into the event, had been feuding with the Heavenly Bodies for well over a year. This rivalry uh, was violent at times and included barbed wire cage matches and a Texas death match. The Heavenly Bodies jumped the Rock and Roll Express before they could get their jackets off and threw Ricky Morton to the outside and went after Robert Gibson doing double team action. Once Morton got back into the match, he ended up doing a slingshot, causing the Heavenly Bodies to go from the ring to the outside. This is when they were able to get their ring gear off and take advantage of the match. Robert Gibson held the ropes open for Ricky to dive through and hit both Gigolo, Jimmy Del Rey, and Dr. Tom Pritchard on the floor. There were spots of miscommunication between the Heavenly Bodies as Jimmy Del Rey had accidentally super-kicked Pritchard, aiming for Ricky Morton instead. The Heavenly Bodies gained the advantage after Dr. Tom performed a powerbomb on Morton, which led to Jimmy Del Rey following up with a moonsault. Del Rey and Morton fought back and forth, and Del Rey even hit another moonsault inside the ring, and Morton got a Frankensteiner Hurricanrana, but could only get a two-count. Eventually, all four wrestlers started brawling in the ring, and the referee couldn't keep control of it. Dr. Tom had even tossed Ricky Morton over the top rope, and Robert Gibson thought they had won the match because in Smoky Mountain, you can be disqualified for throwing your opponent over the top rope into the floor. However, this was the WWF, and that rule doesn't apply in a WWF ring, and the referee said no, that wasn't going to happen, he wasn't going to call for the disqualification, and the match would continue. And at one point, Robert Gibson had Dr. Tom covered for the pin, but Morton went after Jim Cornette, and then the referee got rid of Morton from the ring, allowing Jimmy Del Rey to take the racket from Jim Cornette and jump off the top rope, hitting Robert Gibson in the back of the head, and... Dr. Tom rolled over on top of him for the three count, and you have new Smoky Mountain Tag Team Champions. All in all, it wasn't a really bad match. Uh, both teams seemed to work well together since they'd been feuding for over a year in Smoky Mountain, and as it was pointed out on commentary, the Rock and Rolls have had a long-standing feud with Jim Cornette, dating back to when he was managing the Midnight Express, so, it was interesting to see 
them bring this match to a WWE ring or WWF ring at the time and have it actually on a WWF pay-per-view. Though, unfortunately, because these teams are more popular in the South, and especially with the Rock and Rolls being from the NWA and the Crockett promotion originally, WDF audiences really weren't accustomed to them, and I think a lot of fans took time out to hit the concession stands in the washroom because there was a lot of distraction, I felt, in the background because of the way the color schemes are of the Boston Gardens with a yellow background and people coming back and forth, you could clearly see it. And it was a little bit distracting as a viewer of the match, but fans seemed to really take it as a washroom break, which is unfortunate because, as I said, it was a decent match. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Brent Money Banks, and you are listening to Scumbags of Wrestling. Scumbags is money. The fourth match of the night saw Bam Bam Bigelow versus the Four Doinks. We saw footage of what happened on Superstars, where Doink taunted Luna and Bam Bam in the ring on the video wall, and saying that he knows who all Bam Bam's partners are going to be but he wanted to introduce bam bam to his partners and all of a sudden there was four different uh, screens with doink on them somewhat like how mcfoley did his uh, three faces of foley and just spliced together to look like four different uh, people were on the screen even though they were all the same person and then they cut back to the dressing room area with todd pettengill interviewing bam bam and his team you had the head shrinkers and Bash and Booger chowing down on a uh, turkey and pulling it apart and eating it up. They also had Offa behind them, and he was eating his own turkey and looked like he was stuffing his face so much that he was about to throw up. Luna looked like she wanted to get some turkey from Offa, but he wasn't offering anything, while Bigelow talked about how his team was going to take out all four doinks, and that he had trust in his team to be by his side and defeat them. Todd then sent things back to ringside as Bobby Heenan and Vince McMahon had resumed the pay-per-view commentating and Gorilla and JR had gone back to the Radio WJF. This elimination match was, though, all because Doink had annoyed Bam Bam Bigelow throughout October and November with such pranks as throwing water and confetti on him and dumping a pail of water on Bigelow's off-screen girlfriend, Luna Vachon. Doink had even uh, tied a tripwire across the aisle during one of Bigelow's matches. After Bigelow fell over the wire, Doink attacked him with a broom. Bigelow responded by coming to the ring during one of Doink's matches and destroyed Doink's toy wagon. The character of Doink was played by several wrestlers over the years who occasionally appeared at the same time. This match, booked for Survivor Series, advertised Bigelow teaming with Bastion Booger, who portrayed an overweight and dirty glutton, which most fans would recognize as Mike Shaw, who was also Norman the Lunatic, and very briefly in WWE before becoming Bastion Booger, was... Friar Ferguson. 
As mentioned, his other tag team partners were the head shrinkers of Samu and Fatu. This was during a time while obviously Fatu was playing a wild Samoan instead of the eventual Fatu making a difference from the streets and then the Sultan and ultimately Rikishi, who seemed to have been his best character to get him over in the business. So Luna Vachon and Afa were in their corner and they came out to the ring first to go against the team of the four doinks. After the team was introduced, Doink's team then came out and started off with Doink's theme song, but immediately switched over to the theme song of the Bushwhackers, and Howard Finkel introduced them as Luke Doink and Butch Doink as they came down wearing clown wigs and makeup, just like Doink, with Luke riding a scooter and Butch pulling a wagon. As the fans waited to see who would be the other two Doinks, the intro to Doink's theme played again, and the two Doinks were joined by Mabel Doink and Mo Doink with their manager, Oscar Doink. As they all came to the ring, they were referred to by Bobby Heenan as Doinks on a Mission. Interestingly enough, before the match even started, the fans in the arena were chanting, We want Doink, because they didn't really want these four as representing Doink, since all the build-up had been for Doink and Bam Bam Bigelow. But Luke started off against Bastion, who ended up tagging out to Samu, who bit a balloon from Mo, and was quickly rolled up by Luke for the first elimination. Bastion Booger was next to be eliminated, even though he hit his finisher on Butch. He was distracted by... Fatu, who offered him a banana. So when he tried for his finisher again, he had nobody to land on as Butch was rolled out of the way. The Bushwhackers hit the batting rim and Mabel hit a leg drop for the victory, sending Bastion Booger out of the match. Fatu got in there and was using a turkey as a weapon. And then Mo got in with a scooter and started just rolling around until Bam Bam kicked him off the scooter and tossed it to the outside. Fatu went to the top rope and hit a splash on Mo, who wasn't the legal guy at the time. And instead of going for the pin, he was distracted by a banana. Butch got back in to try and give a water bucket splash to Fatu. And Fatu slipped on a banana peel and was easily pinned, leaving Bam Bam to face all four doinks. Bam Bam tried to hold his own by going after three of the doinks and seemed to get the upper hand until Mabel entered the ring and got Bigelow in a compromising position. Mabel missed a splash in the corner and Bigelow went after the bushwhackers, but Luke dumped confetti on Luna, which distracted Bam Bam enough for men on a mission to end up splashing him in the corner. Mabel recovered and did a splash, and all the doinks piled on top of Bigelow for the pin, and all four were the sole survivors of the match, not losing a single member of the team. As Bam Bam left the ring, 
and headed up the aisle, he was confronted by Doink on the screen, who still continued to taunt him. Unfortunately, we never got to see Bam Bam and Doink on this night. Bam Bam and Doink's feud remained unresolved for several months. They were in the ring at the same time during the main event of the Royal Rumble, which was the Battle Royal match itself. Bigelow attacked Doink and eliminated him from the match. The blow-off match came at WrestleMania, where Doink and his midget sidekick, Dink, faced Bigelow and Luna in a mixed tag match. Bigelow and Vachon ended up winning that match, and that was the end of their feud. Hey, it's Jody Thread, and you're listening to Scumbag Podcast. Have you checked out our latest Scumbags of Wrestling t-shirts? We have the original Superstars of Wrestling-inspired Scumbags logo, the Raw's War-inspired parody logo, plus now a Survivor Series podcast logo and a few other logos inspired by Brock Lesnar's Suplex City and property of Scumbags of Wrestling t-shirts. All our t-shirts are made by Daryl over at Twisted Tees. You can find him at TwistedTeesMerch.com. All the shirts are printed right there in his shop in Alora, and have amazing quality and first-rate technology to produce these amazing t-shirts. All our t-shirts come in a variety of different colors and can be purchased for $25 each. Tees is known for their great quality and have done work for some of our friends of the podcast, such as Vagrancy Films, Shockstock, Rockin'Con, London Comic Con, Kill Effect, and the Monsters of Schlock. Or your t shirts today through me directly by going to our website at scumbags.ca or contact me on Facebook at Scumbags Wrestling Podcast and find out how you can get your own shirts and show your pride of being a scumbag at any wrestling event you attend. We're proud to be partnered with Twisted Tees on making these t-shirts, and we hope you help support us and buy one for yourself. Get our full line of t-shirt designs at twistedmerch.com. And finally, it was time for the main event. The main event was the team of All-Americans, which was supposed to have Lex Luger, Tatanka, and the Steiner brothers, Rick and Scott, facing the foreign fanatics of Yokozuna, Ludwig Borga, and the Quebecers, Jacques and Pierre, also known to our fans right now as PCO, Pierre Carl Ouellette. The main story behind the match began that summer when Yokozuna challenged any American athlete to body slam him on the deck of the USS Intrepid during the event on Independence Day. After several challenges were unable to lift Yoko, Lex Luger arrived on a helicopter and successfully performed what he was termed the body slam heard around the world. Luger was then granted a match against Yokozuna for the WWF World Heavyweight Championship at SummerSlam after Lex had been crisscrossing the nation on his Lex Express. Unfortunately, at that event, he only got a count of victory and did not win the title 
and Yokozuna remained champion. In the dressing room after the match, Barga had interrupted Luger's celebration and criticized Luger, initiating a new feud between them and taking Luger away from Yokozuna and the WWE Championship. The Steiner brothers had spent the fall of 93 feuding with the Quebecers over the tag team championships. They had faced each other several times during the fall, and the Quebecers had won the WWF tag team titles from the Steiner brothers on September 13th. And then since arriving in WWF, Tatanka had been on a two-year winning streak until he met up with Ludwig Borga on the October 31st edition of Superstars. Borga ended up defeating Tatanka after hitting him with a steel chair, and then Yokozuna came in and attacked Tatanka, causing an injury to his ribs and forcing him off the All-American team. As a result, the All-Americans recruited The Undertaker to replace Tatanka. Then on November 15th episode of Monday Night Raw, Luger defeated Pierre, and as a result of an injury that he sustained with the use of Luger's loaded forearm, the Forearm Fanatics had to replace Pierre, and this time they replaced him with Crush, and he was the sole American on the team. Crush was feuding with Randy Savage going into the event, and they'd been on-screen friends, but Crush was angry that Savage did not save him from an attack from Yokozuna in July of 93 on an episode of Monday Night Raw. To make his injuries seem real, Crush did not appear on WWF TV yeah, for several months. When he made his return October 18th, accompanied by Yokozuna's manager, Mr. Fuji, he claimed that they sympathized with Crush's sense of betrayal by Savage, and Savage tried to make amends with Crush, who then attacked Savage and announced that he had uh, turned against Savage and the United States and was aligning himself with Yokozuna, Mr. Fuji, and Japan. So now it was the foreign fanatics, Jacques Rougeau, Yokozuna, Crush, and Ludwig Borga taking on the All-Americans, the Steiner brothers, Rick and Scott, The Undertaker, and Lex Luger. Scott Steiner started against Ludwig Borga, but soon Scott tagged in Rick and Borga tagged in Yokozuna. Rick was able to knock Yokozuna out of the ring, but he quickly got back in and tagged Borga, and Borga and Rick went against each other. Rick went for a top rope crossbody, which Borga didn't properly catch him, but still rolled him up for the pin and the first elimination. Jacques then got in next to take on Scott Steiner. Scott picked up Jacques and press slammed him into the waiting arms of Crush, who took over the match. But that was until Randy Savage then appeared in the aisle, trying to get to the ring, but was restrained by officials and smoking guns. Scott then knocked Crush out of the ring, and Crush fought with Savage until he was counted out of the match. With Crush gone, it was then Scott Steiner and Jacques Rougeau going at it until Lex Luger tagged in for the first time. Lex slammed Jacques around and went for the top rope for an elbow drop and a pinfall, 
eliminating Jacques Rougeau. It was now Undertaker, Lex Luger, and Scott Steiner against Yokozuna and Ludwig Borga. Scott Steiner re-entered the match and went after Ludwig Borga, executing a superplex on Borga. But when he tried to pin him, Yokozuna entered the ring. Yokozuna did a leg drop on Steiner and pinned him to even the match at two wrestlers apiece. Lex then fought Borga and Zuna by himself before tagging in Undertaker finally to the match. Taker gained control of the match, but Yokozuna turned the momentum around by hitting a bonsai drop on Taker. When the attempt was done a second time, Undertaker sat up and the two men fought outside the ring until both men were counted out and eliminated from the match. Luger and Borga then fought back and forth until Luger hit a running forearm smash and pinned Borga to win the match. After the match, Santa Claus came to the ring to celebrate with Lex and send everybody home happy. In the months after the event, the Steiner brothers would continue to challenge the Quebecers but would not be able to regain the tag team championships. As a result of their confrontation at the Survivor Series, The Undertaker and Yokozuna faced off with each other at the Royal Rumble 94 in a casket match for the WWF Championship. After a lot of outside interference, Taker lost that match and disappeared for a while, supposedly dying as part of the uh, loss in the casket match. Though he'd take most of the spring and summer off, he did return at SummerSlam to go against the other Undertaker, and then finally faced Yokozuna again at Survivor Series in another casket match. Lex continued his rivalry with Yokozuna as co-winners of the 94 Royal Rumble with Bret Hart and Luger was granted a shot at Yokozuna at WrestleMania for the world title. Mr. Perfect was the referee who returned for that and turned heel by disqualification defying Lex and not allowing him to win the title. As for Ludwig Borga, he was scheduled to continue a feud with Tatanka up until Royal Rumble 94, and Borga then unfortunately sustained an ankle injury and never returned to WWF. He was also scheduled to do a feud with Lex Luger, but that was all changed due to Ludwig's injury and departure. Crush and Randy Savage also continued their feud all the way up until WrestleMania, where they ended their feud in a Falls Count Anywhere match at WrestleMania 10, which Savage had ended up winning. Overall, this match or event really wasn't the greatest uh, Survivor Series that they've had. Up until then, they had some pretty decent uh, events, and this one was kind of lackluster compared to the other ones. Probably the highlight was the Smoky Mountain Tag Team match as being the best match, because as much as I also love the elimination matches that are special to Survivor Series, these ones went on way too long, and with a lot of rest holds or just constant tagging in and out without anything really happening. And unlike how things used to be uh, prior to Monday Night Raw happening in January, 
this one didn't really culminate any feuds and it left people looking for more to happen whether it was on raw or they had to wait until royal rumble 94 thank you for joining me for this special episode of the time warp of the scumbags wrestling podcast i hope you enjoyed our trip back in time for 25 years and to see what all happened at this survivor series for myself, it's kind of odd to believe that this was 25 years ago and I'd only been a wrestling fan for seven years leading up to this. But, yeah, a lot has changed over the time, the way the presentation is, especially with that little entryway in a video wall compared to the big ramp and big Titantron. So a lot of things can change over this amount of time and we'll look forward to this year's Survivor Series happening this Sunday, along with NXT TakeOver, where they're going to have war games. I'll have my review, and hopefully a guest or two, doing our picks and review of what's going to happen at Survivor Series later on this weekend. We'll see you then. Thanks for tuning in.